morning will be um, out of Egypt from Matthew chapter 2, verses 13 through 23. And we pick up the account after the wise men having uh, heard in a dream not to return to Herod, so they departed their country for their country on a different way. So we'll pick up on uh, verse 13 on the account. Now when they have departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male, all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. Verse 19, but when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in the place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled. He shall be called a Nazarene. This is the word of the Lord. He's a good teacher. He's a moral example. He's a political revolutionary. He's a tragic martyr. He's a heroic figure of history. He's an ancient hippie who loved peace and unity. He was a partier. After all, he changed water to wine. Who really was Jesus? Who really is Jesus? Why, why did he come? During this season of all seasons, it, that seems to be the most important question to answer, right? Jesus was born, but why? This morning, church, we come to the conclusion of a brief study in the first two chapters of Matthew's Gospel. Matthew uh, was one of Jesus' disciples, and he wrote this account of Jesus' life and ministry mainly for the people of Israel, for a Jewish audience, seeking to convince and to show them Jesus as the true king of the Jews, of God's people. So during these Sundays of Advent, we've looked through Matthew 1 and the first half of Matthew 2. We've seen the genealogy of Jesus, how he is the king in David's line. We've seen him called Emmanuel, God with us. 
We've seen him named Jesus, meaning God saves. We've seen the wise men come from afar to worship him as king. But this week, as we come to the end of Matthew chapter 2, we see the story of baby Jesus, of Christmas, take a dark turn. Yet even in the midst of the darkness that we're going to see, we're also going to see a glimmer of hope and the true purpose for the coming of Christ, the true purpose of Christmas that Jesus has come to deliver. So with our time together this morning, church family, with the passage Ed just read for us, let's see three points this morning. First, let's see a new exodus. A new exodus. Second, a sorrowful hope. A sorrowful hope. And third, a humble Savior. A humble Savior. So first, a new exodus. Look there in verse 13 of Matthew 2. So Matthew writes that these wise men that we looked at last week, these magi from the east, from Babylon most likely, have departed from worshiping Jesus in Bethlehem. But as we saw back in verse 8 last week of Matthew 2, they had an agreement with Herod going on. The Herod, this, this kind of Roman-established king of the land. So Herod had asked these wise men to kind of circle back and, and let him know once they had learned any more information about Jesus' whereabouts. He said he, too, wanted to worship this newborn king. But there in verse 12, like Ed just mentioned, the wise men are warned not to return to Herod and instead begin their journey back to their home country by another route. So the wise men have been warned, don't go back to Herod. But another warning still needs to be made. And we see that in verse 13. Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt. And remain there until I tell you. Why? For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. To put yourself in Mary and Joseph's shoes. They've just experienced experienced this wonderful visit from these foreign magi. They've seen their son, probably between one and two years old, worshipped as the true king of the Jews presented with these precious gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. And now, this drastic shift happens. They need to get out. Herod's not going to suffer any rival to his throne, and so he will seek to kill Jesus. So the angel warns Joseph, and during the night, they leave for Egypt. There in verse 15, we see Matthew kind of look ahead to the end of the story and say that they'll remain there in Egypt until Herod's death, probably some years later. We see there at the end of verse 15 what has been a familiar refrain so far in Matthew's gospel, and that is that this story happens just the way it happens so that the word of God is fulfilled. You see that there? Matthew says this, what just happened, was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. We'll see that same sort of thing two more times in this brief passage. That scripture is fulfilled. And we'll be reminded, church, that 
God is sovereign over history. So down to the minutest detail, everything he has ordained will take place. Matthew goes back to the Old Testament centuries earlier and shows how everything happening here in Matthew chapter 2 surrounding the birth of Christ, no matter how chaotic, no matter how unexpected it seems, has been foreseen and, yes, even ordained by the hand of God himself. God is not out of control ever, even over evil kings even over horrible tragedies. Church, there is no comfort in explaining away horrible tragedies in this world by saying God did not want that to happen. God was not in control of that happening. The comfort is knowing that he is sovereign and knowing that he's exactly aware of what's happening. So what is this fulfillment Matthew points to in verse 15? Well, he's pointing back to the prophet Hosea, who had lived hundreds of years before. Hosea had written how God had called his son out of Egypt. So what's that about? Well, if you've been with us at any point in the last year or so, you'll know that we've been studying slowly through the book of Exodus. And that's exactly what Hosea is talking about. He's talking about the book of Exodus. Remember, in Exodus, we see God call the people of Israel, what? His son. And so when his son, when the people of Israel cry out for deliverance from their bondage to Pharaoh, God hears them, Exodus 2. And he provides a deliverer for them, Exodus 3 and following. This guy's name is Moses. And eventually, through the signs and wonders of the ten plagues, the ten signs of God, Moses brings God's people out of Egypt to freedom, to salvation, to submission to the true king to God himself. And Matthew here is pointing out that that exact same thing is happening again, just in a far grander way. God's greater son, Jesus, is taken to Egypt, to this foreign land, but he won't stay there. He will come out of Egypt. He will come back Just like God had brought his son Israel out of Egypt over a thousand years earlier, so he will bring his greater son, Jesus, out of Egypt, accomplishing a greater deliverance, a greater exodus for God's people. Matthew's teaching us, church, that Jesus is the true Israel, that he's the better Israel. And church, this is what Jesus has come to do. He has come not just to die, which we've talked about so far this Advent season, and we talk about every Sunday when we gather, but he's come to live for us. Jesus has come to do what we cannot do. We've all been made in God's image. We've all been made to bring God glory. We've been created, we've been kind of hardwired by God to find our greatest joy in life, our greatest fulfillment, our greatest satisfaction, our greatest happiness in living for the glory of God. But each of us, like Herod, has rejected that, that design. We declare that, no, we are the sovereign gods of our lives. We are to be served. We are to be worshipped. We talked about that more at length last week, right? When we talked about, talked about Herod. And we see that here again. We see how we 
have committed what one author calls cosmic treason against God. Attempting to topple his throne in order to set up our own. And so as cosmic traitors, we don't deserve just a mere slap on the wrist. We don't deserve kind of pushing it under the carpet, forgetting about it. We deserve God's judgment. And if the sin that we have committed is cosmic, so is the judgment. Friends, we deserve death for our sin. If God does not judge us, then he will cease to be fair or just. Our plight, friends, is the worst one we could imagine. Yet what Matthew is showing us here is that when we couldn't deliver ourselves, when we couldn't live that life we were designed to live for the glory of God, for the design that he created us to fulfill, Jesus came to do that for us. Jesus came as a second Adam, the true Israel. He came to perfectly obey God when we couldn't. And then he died in our place to give us his perfect obedience and to take our damning rebellion upon himself. That's why he came. That's how we're saved. Jesus has not come merely to lead us out from bad political rule like Herod's, but out from under sin's enslaving rule. He has come to execute just so much greater deliverance for God's people, something that the Exodus we see in Exodus was only a hint of. Dear friend, if you're here and you're not a Christian, the Bible says, not me, but the Bible says, well, I say it too. The Bible says it authoritatively that you and I, indeed all of us, are enslaved to sin. We think we're in control. In fact, we think that the more we're in control, the more free we'll be. But the more we get what we want, the more we realize that we are terrible gods, that our wills are fallen. And the more and more we desire and, and pursue our desires, the more we find ourselves enslaved by our desires. We're not in control at all. And we deserve God's judgment for our rebellion. But the Bible, friend, also says God is merciful. And he has provided a way for us to be saved. Jesus has come to live that life we should have lived and then to die the death we should have died, to take our judgment on the cross. So if we turn to him and trust in his perfect life and death in our place, we will be forgiven. We will be accounted righteous, accepted by God, united to Christ. God's salvation is not free but it's been paid for. It's been paid for by his only son so that those who trust in him can be liberated from slavery to sin and to death like Peter read for us earlier from Hebrews chapter 2. If you're here and you have questions about that, we'd love to talk to you. You can talk to me, you can talk to, about, talk to anybody who is up here lighting the candles or playing music. We would love to share with you more what it would look like to trust in Jesus and be made right with God. That's the good news of Christmas. So at first, we see here in this first scripture fulfillment in Matthew 2, in the second half of Matthew 2, a new exodus, a deliverance brought 
by Jesus. Second, though, we see a sorrowful hope. You see that in verses 16 through 18? Church family, verses 16 through 18 are some of the most horrific verses in all of Scripture. King Herod, wrapped up in his tooth and nail passion to preserve his power, becomes so consumed and frenzied with anger and fear towards this newborn king that he goes crazy. Matthew says, then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious. Herod's reign is being threatened by this upstart king, and it's apparent now to him that his ploy to get the wise men to help him out has backfired, so he goes utterly ballistic. Verse 16, he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem, and in all that region who were two years old and under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Like Pharaoh in Exodus, Herod becomes so fearful of losing power, he resorts to infanticide. Dear church, there's no way to sugarcoat this. It's ugly. It's horrifying. It's sickening. This is the part of the movie where we cover our kids' eyes, or better yet, shut off the TV. It's more than unpleasant. It is the worst of human evil. Herod sends his messengers to perform a purge of whoever would be in Jesus' age range, probably about 20 children, so he can be certain no threat is left to his throne. This is horrendous, and it's typical Herod. It's his M.O. So we read in other sources that at various times during his reign, Herod even had members of his own family killed. He was vicious, using his power to protect himself at all costs. And here, here Jesus is the target. Here Jesus is the target of the most evil intentions. Beloved, just like we saw last week, again, we must see here that Herod is a picture of the logical conclusion of each of our lives in rebellion against God. Each of us, just like Herod, has cast off God's rule. Each of us in our sin have wanted to be the sovereign of our lives, to be in control, to call the shots, to thumb our noses at God. And so reigning on our throne facades, when we see something standing in the way of what we want, we become manipulative, self-absorbed, and yes, even murderous. Sure, you probably haven't taken someone's life. But as you continue on in Matthew, you'll get to chapter 5 in the Sermon on the Mount. And you'll see Jesus teach that our anger towards others is like murder of the heart. When we rage against others because they defy our authority and our plan for our lives, we destroy them in our minds. Church, nothing has really changed since Matthew 2. 
Just like Herod's power was threatened, so he resorted to killing those who stood in his way. So we, when our kingdoms are threatened, seek to do away with whatever might inconvenience or distract us from what we really want. And as our own gods, we execute vengeance on those who resist us. Bringing judgment down on a way, in a way God only can do to damn those who contradict us. And inevitably, those throne facades decay, implode, and our kingdoms collapse, bringing down others with us. I think we see a prime example of this today in our world's celebration of the practice of abortion. So since the year 1973, it's estimated that more than 55 million abortions have been performed in the United States. 55 million human lives brought to an end in large part to serve ourselves, to establish our own thrones, to protect our control of our lives. Has anything really changed since Herod? We're no better than him. Church, look deep into the soul of Herod and see your soul in rebellion against God. Allowing nothing to stand in your way. Fighting for your own power with every ounce of energy you've got. Have you gotten fulfillment yet? Have you arrived yet? I know, I know this isn't the most positive message for the Sunday before Christmas, but you know what? Jesus didn't come to bring us a positive message. Ultimately, he brought us a message that is overwhelmingly positive, but it's not merely a positive feeling holiday. Jesus has come to us in our filth, in our mess. He's come to save us, which means we need saving He's come for those in utter rebellion against him. He's come for sinners. He's come for us. See, like those parents in Bethlehem, God himself has lost a son. He gave up his son to experience his wrath so we could be saved. God understands the pain our sin causes because he's borne it on himself. But, but even in this story of great sorrow, there's a glimmer of hope. There's hope for the sinner. There's hope for the woman who's had an abortion. There's hope for those who are mind murderers in their anger. There in verse 18, Matthew quotes from the prophet Jeremiah. He says, a voice was heard in Ramah weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. It's a raw quote from chapter 31 of Jeremiah, where the prophet is considering the sorrow of Israel going into exile. He's bringing that passage that the readers of Matthew probably would have recognized, and he's using that same passage to communicate the grief, the utter despair that the mothers of Bethlehem are facing. But if you go back to Jeremiah 31, 15, and you zoom out, 
you'll see that that verse in the context of Jeremiah's prophecy is in a sea of God's mercy. So that's Jeremiah 31, 15, that Matthew quotes. Listen to the next verse, the very next verse, chapter 31, verse 16 of Jeremiah. Thus says the Lord, keep your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears, for there is a reward for your work, declares the Lord, and they shall come back from the land of the enemy, from exile. Listen to this. There is hope for your future, declares the Lord, and your children shall come back to their own country. The exile will end. There is joy and hope in the midst of your sorrow. David Platt puts it this way in his commentary on Matthew. When Matthew quotes from Jeremiah, it's as if he's saying amidst the bitter tragedy of Bethlehem, yes, the pain is real, but there is hope for your future, and that hope is here. Jesus has come. The exile will end. Even in the midst of such horror, God is sovereign. You see that there in the fact that just like he delivered Moses in Exodus chapter 2, he delivers here his Savior from the clutches of Herod. And he's going to bring him back. If you keep reading in Jeremiah, he goes on to talk of a new covenant. A covenant of salvation. A covenant of mercy that Jesus has come to begin. So church, you may have pain this Christmas. It may not be the most wonderful time of the year. But Jesus hasn't come to make your nostalgic happiness a reality. As good of a common grace blessing as that might be. Jesus has come for you in your pain. Jesus has come to you in your blackest night. And he has brought hope. He has brought salvation and life. So we see Matthew showing a new exodus, a sorrowful hope, and finally we see Matthew showing a humble Savior. Look there in verse 19. Herod has died. An angel comes to Joseph and says he can now return to Israel. So Joseph and his refugee family get up and travel back to their homeland. But wisely, Joseph, and this is confirmed in a dream there, you see, stays away from Judea, where Herod's son is reigning, who is evil in his own right. He bypasses Judea, where Bethlehem would have been, and he settles down instead in a northern part, in a city called Nazareth, in the district of Galilee. Further north, more safe, Also the same town Joseph and Mary had lived in before. We see that in Luke chapter 1. So they're no stranger to Nazareth. They arrive back and in verse 23, Matthew writes of one final fulfillment. Number three of three fulfillments in our passage this morning. He says, and Joseph went and lived in a city called Nazareth so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled. That Jesus would be called a Nazarene, that is, coming from Nazareth. So that's the one last Old Testament fulfillment in this text. But there's a bit of a problem here. 
See, in Matthew, or in, in verse 15 of Matthew 2, Matthew quotes Hosea, and you can find that verse in Hosea, chapter 11. In verse 18, he quotes Jeremiah, and you can find that in Jeremiah 31, 15. But here, he doesn't call out a specific prophet. He just refers to prophets, plural. And the fact is, if you went back online and you searched for Nazarene in the Old Testament, you wouldn't find that word anywhere. Nowhere in the Old Testament is the Messiah called a Nazarene. So what's Matthew up to? Is he making a mistake? What's he thinking about? Well, it seems like Nazareth wasn't the greatest town from which to hail. It was lowly. It was unimportant. And in the Old Testament, we see that this king of the Jews to come will not come, at least in his first advent. We'll think more about his second advent tomorrow at Christmas Eve. But at least in his first advent, he will not come with pomp and circumstance. He will come instead with humility and suffering. So, for example, you might know the passage from the prophet Isaiah, chapter 53, where he calls the Messiah, the king to come, someone having no form or majesty, no beauty, a man of sorrows, despised, rejected. I think this is what Matthew's referring to. There's this promise, this thread throughout parts of the Old Testament of Jesus's lowliness and humility that's now fulfilled as his family takes up residence in, of all places, Nazareth. The scholar Leon Morris puts it this way, we are to understand the prophets as pointing to one who would be despised and rejected, and we are to understand Jesus as fulfilling that connection by living in obscure Nazareth. Church, Jesus' first advent, his first coming, was as a humble servant to rescue sinners. That's why he came. We see here from these three prophecies fulfilled, Three things about why Jesus came. First, he came to deliver us and lead us out in a new exodus from our slavery to sin. Second, he came to bring us true hope in the midst of our sorrow. And third, he came to humble himself and suffer our judgment in our place. He's come to fulfill the scriptures. All of them. All of the Old Testament, all of God's promises point to the Messiah coming to bring to a head God's entire salvation plan to save the whole creation from the curse of sin. Do you remember back in Genesis chapter 3? After that first man and first woman sin, God promises in the midst of sin and rebellion and darkness in the Garden of Eden, he promises that one of Eve's descendants will come and he'll crush the enemy, the head of the serpent Satan. One of Eve's descendants will eventually come and kill death forever, like we read before in Hebrews 2. But not without going through suffering himself. We see throughout the Old Testament this, this kind of ongoing story of the, of the struggle between the descendants of the serpent and the descendants of Eve. We see Pharaoh coming in the line of the serpent. 
attempting to kill all the Israelite children in Exodus 2, including the would-be deliverer, Moses. And we see that again here as Herod attempts the very same thing, to kill the Israelite children, including the would-be deliverer, Jesus. And we see that finally at the end of Matthew's Gospel where there's thread throughout the old, whole Old Testament of the line of the serpent and the line of the woman come to a final battle. And Satan gets his best chance yet. He takes the very Son of God and nails him to a cross. Apparently, he's won the war. As Jesus' last breaths come gasping from his dying lungs, it seems like God's plan of salvation has been finally thwarted. It seems like Herod's murderous plan is finally completed three decades after his death. Jesus is killed. Once again, we come to the dark part of Jesus' story. As literal darkness descends on Mount Golgotha. Yet, unbeknownst to Satan, this ultimate murder of the very Son of God is actually the very way God has always planned to deliver his people and destroy sin. Take that, Satan. Tables have been turned. Jesus on the cross suffered your worst attempt, and he did so to bear our judgment to set us free. What Satan thought was the funeral service of God's plan to save was actually the beginning of it all. Salvation offered to the whole world. Jesus, friends, has defeated our sin and our death and our enemy once and forever. And he has risen again, proving that he has the power and that his victory given to us is effectual and will never fade away. Dear church, this is a dark passage on December 23rd. But King Jesus came at Christmas into a dark world to bring the light of salvation. Our hearts are black with sin, but Jesus has come to take that blackness on himself so we can be delivered. That is why Jesus came. Herod didn't have the last laugh. Neither did Satan. Jesus came to win salvation for his people, and he's coming again to bring God's plan to a glorious conclusion. That's what we celebrate at Christmas. In the darkness, joy has dawned. Let's pray. Lord, there's no place like church where we are tempted to deny our darkness and put on fake pretenses of being all put together. But when we look at our hearts and see the darkness of our sin, the murderous intentions of our hearts and our anger, we see that we desperately needed a Savior. And into that darkness you came. You, God, would have been perfectly just to condemn us forever for our cosmic treason, but you instead sent your Son into our darkness to bring light. So we praise you. 
Lord, we humbly pray for any in our midst who still live in darkness and will bear judgment for their sin. Lord, may this Christmas be the time of renewal, of regeneration, of salvation. And we pray for the rest of us as we come through another season of seeing family and friends and the good blessings you've given us in this life, we pray that you would give us renewed awe and expectancy that the plan you have begun to save your people will come to conclusion, perhaps today. We pray all these things in the majestic name of Christ. Amen. Amen.